So at this time, we're going to continue through the Gospel of Matthew, and it's one of the great biographies of Jesus. Um, I'm excited to amplify who Jesus is, even coming out of this prayer time. Let's just remember who God is. Let's talk about who, who Jesus is and, uh, and who they'll be for them and who, they are, who he is for us. So join me in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to uh, spend just a little bit of time in the, in the scripture today, and then we'll be on. All right, Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered in the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath, do, on the Sabbath duty in the temple consecrated the Sabbath, and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known these, what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into a synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charge against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. There's a clear difference in terms of the way that the Pharisees see this thing called religion, Judaism at the time see what it looks like to walk with God and what God's expectations are and what God's promises are and what God has for us in this life than than Jesus. And this is one of those times where we see in Scripture where just like a truly fundamental difference in the way that you see the world. And so the topic at hand here in, in this particular passage happens to be the Sabbath. But what it really is, is a way of viewing the world. And so we look at, we look at the way the Pharisees are looking at, uh, at, at what these disciples are doing. So the disciples, they're walking through a grain field and they're hungry. And so they pluck something off that's the head of the wheat and they're eating it. You have to be pretty darn hungry to be plucking off raw heads of wheat and sticking them in your mouth. But it feels to us seemingly like innocuous, right? It's like, yeah. You're hungry? You want to eat some wheat? Like, go ahead, eat some wheat. To the Pharisees, somehow, this small, seemingly insignificant action takes on grandiose proportions, right? Somehow, this seemingly small thing is then, in the next moment, blown up into this much larger thing. And so, what we see from the perspective of the Pharisees that Jesus challenges is that to the Pharisees, they no longer saw the Sabbath as the Sabbath. 
they saw the Sabbath as representing something so much bigger. And this was their perspective on religion and the law and what it looked like to walk with God in general. Breaking the Sabbath, this day of rest that God had asked his people to do, to remember him, to love him, and to recognize with a, with a physical action that their life wasn't just about work, that their life could, could be in the finished work of God, right? I'll talk more about that in a minute. There's all of this power-packed meaning in the Sabbath itself, but what they see in it is not those things. What they see in it is a day of rest, and then when you break that day of rest by picking a grain head off, that constitutes working, that constitutes disrespecting God, and that constitutes breaking the law and therefore dishonoring God, and it being the biggest possible thing you can do. Basically, you're spitting in God's face. So it's this really interesting kind of like series of conclusions one after another, but what we see is this small insignificant action to them represents something so much more. Jesus sees something very different going on here. And what he challenges them is he challenges them at their very heart. He doesn't talk about the Sabbath. He doesn't talk about what the Sabbath represents. He doesn't talk about any of that stuff. He makes this statement to them, and he says, he turns it right back on him. He says, if you had understood what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. In this case, condemned his disciples for picking grains off the, off the weed heads, but something so much more. They had a lifestyle where they were in the habit of condemning the innocent. Constantly. And what Jesus is pointing to is he says, yes, this thing happened where you're looking at the disciples and you're holding a judgmental finger towards my disciples for doing this thing and making this huge extrapolation off of something small. But guess what? It actually is a heart issue for her, for you. And what that heart issue that's going on with you, you don't understand that what God desires is mercy much more than sacrifice. And because you don't understand that, you end up condemning the innocent consistently. So there's something in this that we can get out of, of, of the way that Jesus saw stuff and the way that the Pharisees saw stuff. And the stakes are really big for us. The stakes are condemning the innocent. You know, as I've done ministry in this city for a long time now, I'm trying to think, I think it's been like 15, 16 years, something like that. There's one thing that I've seen more prevalent in the body of Christ than probably anything else. Well, that's, a, that's pretty bold. I'll just say I've seen it a lot. <laughs> it feels better as a preacher to make some like grandiose statement. But I've seen it a lot. We'll go there. And that is the innocent condemning, I'm, I'm sorry, the people of God condemning the innocent. And the primary expression that I've actually seen this in the city of Berkeley and in this area is actually towards the people of God. Starting with self. This type of thinking, check this out. I just did this action. And all of a sudden, this action that I just did means this, 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 this. And all of a sudden, I'm over here and I don't love God. That is so prevalent in the thinking of the church in this city. 
And we have done such a good job of beating ourselves to death because the very things that happened in the Pharisees' thinking happens in the thinking of the body of Christ. Oh man, last night I did this action. I hate that I did that action. Boom. 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 All of a sudden, the action doesn't mean the action. The action means this about me. Oh, that my heart isn't exactly where I thought it would or where I want it to be. And oh, since my heart isn't where I thought I want it to be, well, God sees the heart. He doesn't see the action. You know, when we do something right, he sees the heart and we question the heart. When we do something wrong, then he sees the heart and he sees the heart. It's like it's, we're done both ways. But you come over here and all of a sudden, there's this like, God feels like a Pharisee more than he feels like what Jesus feels like in this situation. And we end up walking around super heavy, feeling like we've got a traffic cop for a God that's behind us, picking out every action, and every action isn't a small infraction. Every action means something way bigger than it actually is. And it's funny that we read this passage right on the heels of Matthew chapter 11 when we get out of the ba- The last part of Matthew chapter 11, if you remember, is he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then we come into right into a passage where he nails what's at the heart of that. What is it in life? What is it in your perspective, Pharisees? What is it in our perspective, church, that would make us live in this way where we're, we're seeing like that? And he says it's at this at the core. You don't understand what these words mean. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So what... What does he mean by that? And like, what can we learn out of that as the people of God in order to live in a much more free place? And I'll tell you, the thing that also comes from this is your whole perspective of what it looks like to do life outwardly towards the world. When you live under that kind of burden, guess what? That's the kind of burden that you demand on the world. And so, I don't know if you guys have ever lived this before, but the days where... I was trying so hard to fast to prove that I was wholehearted for God. And I broke that fast. The rest of that day for me was not one of great joy and thanksgiving. It more felt like a day of me going like, man, I can't believe I broke that fast. And what it means that I broke that fast is that I actually don't love God that much. And next thing you know, I'm not noticing any of the needs that are going on in the world. I'm not noticing anything that's going on outside of what's going on with me. And so in the next part of this passage, we see that exact thing play out. Jesus comes in, does something awesome, sees this guy in need. His hand is all withered up, and he can't use it for his entire life. And Jesus comes in and says, is it lawful for me to heal this man? And instead of saying like, watch this. This is going to be amazing. This guy who's been locked up in pain, his entire life is about to be set free. They don't even see that stuff. The great move of God that's happening in their midst is completely missed because they're more concerned with the infraction that it would be that that qualifies as work on the Sabbath in their rule book. And so because of that, they have a judgmental stance towards Jesus. They want to kill him. They have a judgmental stance towards the man with the withered hand, and they don't even care about the move of God that's happening in their midst. All because what Jesus is saying is, check your heart. You desire mercy. You don't know that I, God, desire mercy more than sacrifice. So what is this thing that he's pointing to? 
There's, there's something in it before I jump into exactly what it means that I want to talk about, and that is one of the things that we see here that's really dangerous is that you take something that is actually God, and then you amplify it to a level that it's bigger than something that's more important than it. And that's what we're seeing here. And, and, and if you think about the actual statement, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. If you read the Old Testament, did God desire sacrifice? If you read the New Testament, does God desire sacrifice? If you read this statement, does God desire sacrifice? Yes. He does not throw away sacrifice. He doesn't say, you don't get it. I don't desire sacrifice. I desire mercy. It's a relative statement. It's a statement against something else. And if we're going to get something about what the church, what the charismatic church calls the religious spirit, but what really is it's just it's saying is it's saying a form of godliness that doesn't carry any power. It's this empty, hollow shell of religion where all of a sudden there's no life, there's no heartbeat, there's no passion, there's no power to it. How do you stay away from a life of walking with God that looks like that? It's found in this. It's found in relative importance. What the church has been really good at and what I think we're really good at is being on-off switches. God doesn't care about that. He does care about this. And so what we'll see something is we'll see that there's an abuse, right? Um, people are, are dancing in a way that's lustful and it's leading to sex before marriage. Okay, so in the movie Footloose, there's no dancing in the town, <laughs> right? We were talking about this movie last night when we were at Nancy and Lindsay's awesome birthday party. <laughs> Which for those of you who weren't there, it was in a, a club in San Francisco and people were having a good time dancing. It was awesome. But we were laughing because we were like, there's so many churches still in America that this is how this goes. It looks a lot like what the Pharisees did here. Okay, there's an action that happens that's dancing. There's actually nothing wrong with that. What it leads to is this. And what that leads to is this. And then when that happens, there's this. And all of a sudden, the people who dance don't love God. We laugh, but it happens everywhere. That's their example, so we can sit outside of it and go, oh, you know, <laughs> that's, that, that, that's not me. But how often do we actually do this? And it's, relat it's relative importance. That's what it is. It's like, does, does God call us to not sin? Totally. Does he not want sin in our life? Absolutely. But then does it become about a rule book? where it's about keeping the rules for the sake of the rules so quick. How does that happen? Because it's disconnected from the heart of God. Because it's disconnected from the heart of God. And check it out in this passage exactly what happens. The rule book becomes disconnected from the heart of God. What was the Sabbath all about? The Sabbath was about this worshipful experience of God where you stop for a day and you remember the work that he has done. So you look back and you go, God is so amazing. Let me show you where I've seen him all over, all over my life. Generations, you sit down with your kids. Let me tell you the stories about who God's been to me. He is crazy amazing. It was supposed to be this worshipful remembrance at the end of the week to look back and say, look at the works of God's hands. Does this not bring us into a place of thanksgiving over who God is? Let's remember who he is based upon the actions that have happened in our history 
and in our week. That's what the Sabbath is now all about, and that's what the Sabbath was about. How far had the Pharisees gotten from the actual heartbeat of God in this rule? Because it was a real rule, and God has real guidelines for, our, for us as his people. But somehow the rule had become the rule, and the rule wasn't the ends to the means, or the means to the ends, right? The ends that he was trying to get to is worship God, be thanksgiving, be connected in heart and mind to your God. Where they were was a million miles away from that because they didn't ask the why. They didn't ask, why does God do it this way? I want to know more than anything who God is, who he really is, at the core of him, the depths of who he is. So when one of his ways, when I encounter one of his ways, the first question that we should be asking that the Pharisees weren't asking is why? Why did he put the Sabbath in place? Oh, it's actually because he wanted pe people to be thanks thankful and, and celebrate the finished work. Would that happen through healing this person's hand? Probably so. So by the spirit of the Sabbath, we should be rejoicing over this action, but completely lost it because they didn't ask the why. Why does God not want us to have sex before marriage? Not just that he's a rule holder. Oh, I feel so bound up and like I love this person and shouldn't this be a glorious out expression of this thing? Like this is so misunderstood in our, in our society right now. And, and, and to solve for it, what we've done is relegate, we, we've decreased the importance of sex to something that's trivial. It's like it doesn't matter as much as it used to matter, and so therefore it's trivialized. And so what we've done is we've responded to the, the rule by decreasing the power of the thing involved in the rule. And so you take something that's supposed to be big and beautiful and powerful, and then you suck the power out of it so that you don't feel bad about breaking the rule. Instead of saying, God, why? And then him saying, because this is so beautiful, and this is so powerful. This is something that's only meant to be experienced with the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with, because I've created it at its very essence to bind two people together in a way that's inseparable. That's the act of sex. It's not a, just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. And when you have sex before marriage, what it's designed by its very design to do, the act, it's mutually exclusive with doing it before marriage because it's supposed to bind you together in the covenant that's been established. And so I've designed it this way with this purpose and this power, and that's why the rule's in place. It's to save your heart and her heart. I don't want either of your hearts shredded, is what God's saying. I've designed it this way, with my great genius and my great brilliance, to pull the two of you together forever, till death do you part. And the conclusion that we make instead is, that's antiquated. It's actually not that powerful. You know, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. And don't be one of those religious people that, like, you know, cares a whole bunch about that has a hard time coming to church after that's happened during the week, then we lesser the thing rather than elevating God's great mercy. It's crazy. The, the, the line of things that happen in any of these, you can see how it just deteriorates the original attention of God's heart, and it all starts with not asking the question why. 
It's a seeking of keeping a rule book and not seeking, of keep, seeking out the heart of God. And that was Jesus' big problem with the Pharisees all along, is he's like, you're making this something else than seeking out the true heart of God and truly trying to honor him. And you're missing the whole thing. His heart is, he desires mercy more than he desires sacrifice. Yes, does he care about your sin? Yes, but the blood of Jesus triumphs over that stuff. Right? So even in the example that I just gave, it's like, if you come to the Lord and you're like, man, I've had a lot of that premarital sex in my life. What can I do? Do I, do I walk away feeling guilty and do I come and... No, that's what the blood of Jesus is for. You don't trivialize it and you don't push it down like it's not meaningful. It is meaningful. But what you do is you elevate the blood of Jesus and you're like, this is more powerful than that. So the, mer the minute you come to Jesus, mercy over your life. You come to me, you've declared that you, that you are wrong, that you want to change, even if you're not very good at changing. Like you come to me and you say, wow, I believe that I matter more to you than a single action that I've done. Isn't that the heart of God? So instead of living in the penalty box for two months because you've done something wrong, you come to you, you're like, why did the blood of Jesus happen? Why? Why did Jesus leave heaven? Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he model the perfect life? Why did he then hang on a tree for the sins of humanity? Why did God do that? Why are we not asking why more? If you want to have a great connection to God, ask why constantly. Because what why gets you is it takes you from the action or the surface level down to the depths of what God really cares about. Into the heart of stuff. Into the meat of stuff. And man, my intimacy with God and my connection to Him and the life that flowed through me, all of that dramatically increased when I started asking the question, why, constantly in my life. I'd come to a stricture, and instead of saying like, whoa, that doesn't feel right. First response, right? Ooh, that one doesn't feel like, right? I started asking, okay, why? Why is that the case? And all of a sudden, on the other heart of that was the heart of God waiting for me. It's like, oh gosh, you're way more beautiful than I even thought before. I worked through this hard thing that didn't feel right and that felt like I was rubbing, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, I'm on the other side of it, and I'm like, wow, you designed it for that? That's amazing. So the question that I'd ask us is, that when you hear one of God's rules, what do you hear primarily? Do you hear restriction first? Do you hear heaviness first? Do you hear, I don't, I don't want you to work on the seventh day? And you're like, man, I can't even work on the seventh day. <laughs> right? That's usually what it sounds like a lot of times in my head. I don't know about yours. Like, even if I don't want to do the thing, it's like, oh, now you're saying I can't do this? It's like, whatever, you know? Like, don't bind me up. God's like, okay, you want to work on the seventh day? Like, I thought this was kind of like life-giving and like a blessing to you. So it's all this like statement of relative importance, right? It's all this, it's like, does that matter more than this? Does that matter more than this? And what you'll see is the downfall of the church, the downfall of the Christian in almost every area where it becomes hollow and empty is that you take something of lesser importance and you elevate it above something of more importance. Every time. Every time. I'll give you a good one. 
This is, this is a controversial one. It's a controversial one. But it's backed by Scripture, so we're going to get there. How about the Bible? I want to use an example. I want to talk about the Bible. The Bible is an amazing, inspired book given from God. Through, through thousands of years and 66 different books and, you know, tens of authors, he comes to the place where he delivers this thing where if in partnership with the Holy Spirit you take this and you dedicate your life to searching him out with the help of this thing, it provides all of this life and blessing and keeps you out of trouble and all of this stuff. I grew up in a church where it was full-on Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Did anyone else grow up in a church that's Father, Son, and Holy Bible? I didn't even hear about the Holy Spirit until I left my church. I kid you not. It was Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And the way that you—what will lead and guide you into all truth? The Holy Bible. That's not at all what the Scripture says. But I didn't realize this at all when I was growing up. And so I'd go to the Scriptures, seeking out life and health and, and seeking out, like— answers and stuff, and I'd find none. Totally dry bones. Like, I didn't, I didn't even know how to read this thing. And then somebody told me that God had given the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you into all truth. And that when you go to your Bible, you're not going to get much if you don't have somebody to go in there and help you with it. And I was like, I believe that. I've been living that for years. And so all of a sudden, this thing that's a gift from God becomes kind of like a—it becomes not helpful at the very least and detrimental at the most because it's out of order. Because it's up here and the Holy Spirit's down here. It's relative importance. If you have a high value for the Scriptures and a low value for the Holy Spirit, you will find religion in a book that's meant to, meant to bring you blessing. That's how this happens everywhere. And Jesus talks about it. In John chapter 5, the Pharisees—oh, I didn't write it down. In John chapter 5, I'll paraphrase it. The Pharisees are uh, coming to him, and they're giving Jesus issues as they normally do. And Jesus says to me, to, to them, he says, Hey— <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. Says to them— he says, hey, you're searching diligently in the scriptures for God. No. He says, you search the scriptures diligently, and, and, and in them you look for life. But here standing before you is, is the embodiment of life, and you completely missed it. The whole idea was, I'm more important than what's going on there. You completely miss it. It's not that the scriptures aren't important. It's not that the scriptures aren't important. Just use them in right order. Find the heart of God. Why did you give me this book? Why is it hard for me to come to you? Why is it hard for me to get anything out of this book? If I knew how to ask why to that question, I wouldn't have spent 10 years of my life reading the Bible and having being super dry. Because God would have said, oh, it's really hard and it's dry because you're meant to have somebody to help you through it. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you through it. And I'd be like, awesome! And then I would have done it that way, and fountains of life would have come out of it. 
But instead, I almost threw away the scriptures as not valuable. And sometimes we, we're throwing away the things of God as not valuable because they're not done in right order. Church. Church is exactly the same way. Let's apply this principle to church. Some people don't come to church anymore. Yeah, I went to church. as a bunch of religious people. It was completely formed without any power or life in it. You know? Yeah, I go to, you know, church isn't that important. I have my personal relationship with God. It's like, probably wrong application. It's diminishing the value of church. When that's, that's not what it is. It's like, you've got to know what the higher value things are, but in right order, church is incredibly life-giving. You can't do a great walk with God without community. But because we've seen it done wrong, we put it into the category of, oh, it's not that important. And God, God's not interested in that religious bondage stuff. Like, it's not important to me to submit to pastor. It's not important for me to be accountable to people in my life. It's not important for me to come and worship in community, like all of that stuff. And all of this can be avoided by just asking the question, why? Just continually, life is a journey with the Holy Spirit where you just go, why, God? Why do you do that? Why is your heart that way? What, what in that rule that you've given us expresses your heart? And then Jesus offers them the better way. He comes to them and he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He gives them the answer. Think about this. The Pharisees are living in crazy bondage. They're living under the bondage of their false mindset. And Jesus comes to them with the answer to their, false, their, their poor mindset. And he says, hey, my heart is that I desire mercy more than sacrifice. This is the very key that will unlock them out of the place of bondage that they're in. And they can't even hear it because they're uninterested in hearing it. They're more consumed in the rule book. And so again, what we do is we don't throw away the rule book. We uncover the heart of God and understand why the rules exist, and we align with the heart of God. This feels like trivial stuff. I was really sick, er, sick earlier today, and I was like, should I call PB and have him come speak to us? Because I don't feel good. So I slept for three hours and then prepped for a little bit, and then here we are. But the reason why I didn't call PB is because I read this scripture and I was like, oh my gosh, this is all about intimacy with Jesus. This is all about how we do lifelong connection to understanding the heart of God. And we're going into a retreat, for those of you who are going to the retreat, the whole purpose of the retreat is understanding the heart of God, living in his passion, living in a love relationship with him, living in right order with him, connecting with him deeply, and being filled with life through that connection with God. And I was like, this is like a cornerstone thing. This is the kind of thing that can set us up for an amazing retreat. So whether you're going to the retreat or not, this is like one of those cornerstone passages of truth where you're like, this, this will give you understanding into who God is. Live, like, live life like this. And I talked about it kind of last week where I said, you need God to find God. This is a very similar expression of this trying to navigate the rules, trying to navigate the tools that he's given us, all of that stuff, without connecting with the Holy Spirit, asking why, having a soft heart, and then having him lead and guide you into that, that takes us so far. And we see that in this passage as well. See a group of hard-hearted people that Jesus is standing right in front of them, giving the keys out of their place of bondage, and they're not able to see it. The second part of the passage says, Going on from that place, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charge against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, 
If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is this person than a sheep? Again, it's a relative statement. He's asking them, like, even in your own logic, think about what I really care about. And what he's saying here is, I, I kind of feel like what Jesus is saying here is like, don't you get it? Like, this guy's really suffering. When you have somebody who, who's got a sheep that falls into a hole, you break the Sabbath to pull the sheep out. Like, do you understand your value system and what's being communicated and the way you're, you're interacting with my rules? Like, you're completely missing my heart. Like, how much more valuable is this person than this thing? And I'll tell you when you can understand that you're seeing in a pharisaical mindset versus the mindset of Jesus, it's when you become harsh towards people. When you start becoming harsh towards people, it's pretty clear that you've lost the heartbeat of God. The Pharisees were so harsh towards people all the time. Like everywhere they looked, somebody was doing something that meant that they, should, that, that they were in the wrong. You know? Oh yeah, I'm walking by this homeless dude. Yeah, he, he probably deserves every bit of that. Like He probably made a lot of bad choices that led him to where he is. So, whatever, like... I feel kind of prompted to buy him a coffee, but I'm not going to do it, right? Like, there's just a harshness towards humanity where all of a sudden there's, like, these, these, like, determinations about what must be true. You know, you get the sense that the Pharisees were in that place. Man, look at the guy with the wizard, withered hand. I bet his parents were in sin, you know? I bet he did something to, to deserve that kind of judgment from God. And Jesus is just like, you guys just don't get it. Like, don't you see that this guy's struggling? Don't you see that he's lived a life where he's had to use one hand and not had use of the other? Like, don't you see that this is his moment? Don't you see that the kingdom is at hand and that he's about to get his freedom? And they were so blinded from the, the heartbeat of God in the world that they had all this judgment towards people. And I bet they had a bunch of judgment towards God, too. They completely missed it. And so, you know, I think as you're interacting with this truth, the cool part is, is this is the kind of like, Holy Spirit, search me. Show me where I'm harsh. Show me where I'm harsh towards people. Show me where I'm harsh towards myself. And this is one of those things where you're asking why. Why am I harsh? And the cool part is, I bet the answer will sound something that's as great and glorious as this. Did you know that I desire mercy more than I desire sacrifice? Like, he'll give you a key that sounds like that. Oftentimes what we would expect is, oh, it's because you're a judgmental person. <laughs> right? You expect harshness to come at you because that's how you see the world in, in some ways. It's like, God, why is my heart like this? Oh, it's because you have tons of judgment in you. You got to get rid of that stuff. And then you're left with your judgment, and you're like, oh gosh, like, I don't know how to get rid of this stuff. But that's not at all what Jesus did with the Pharisees. He says, hey, let me tell you about me. Let me show you about me. See this guy? Like, I want to heal his hand. I don't want him to be in this pain. See who I am. Right? And so when we ask the why questions, what God does is he unveils who he is, and in the revelation of what we see him to be, there's freedom. 
what we think is when we ask the why question, he's going to reveal who we are, and there's going to be captivity in prison based upon what we see. We say why he reveals himself almost always. And if he reveals something about you that isn't pleasant, it's only because he's bringing freedom to that area. He never reveals something where he's then like, all right, you got to figure that one out. That's like, that's for you, and you deserve to figure that out because you did all of these things that leaves you in this place. He's never like that. He desires mercy, and if you think about mercy, aren't you glad it doesn't say judgment there or justice there? Aren't you glad it doesn't say he desires justice more than anything than sacrifice? Because then every time where it's actually our fault, we'd be like, oh, shoot. Like, I'm stuck in the bonds of justice here. But mercy is you were actually wrong. Mercy is the person was actually wrong. Like, it actually was their fault. So your little determination about the homeless person that you're walking by, guess what? You're probably right. It probably was their fault to some degree. Maybe, but it doesn't matter. That's actually not how God sees the world at all. So like say, okay, it was their fault, and then move into mercy and step out of justice because that's where God lives. But we've got to get this mercy thing in us. We've got to understand that, that what mercy is, is even for the stuff that we actually did, he doesn't make you pay for that stuff. That's what mercy is. That's what the basic of the go- that's the basics of the gospel message, right? The cross of Christ, if it screams anything to the world, it's that God does not give according to what you deserve. He offers a better way. And so this whole, like, I desire mercy more than sacrifice thing, this is central to the cross of Christ, and this is why it's one of the most important truths that we get anchored in our heart because it's, it's, the, it's the center of the gospel and it's what sets you free. And so he's giving the Pharisees the gift here, like, this is who I am. You're justice-minded. I'm mercy-minded. Come on up. As Ryan was sharing about that, the thing that came to mind is I think the Lord is always bringing stuff up in order to draw us to ask why, but it is really important how we ask why. There's two ways you can ask why. You can ask why very um, accusatorily, like, why would you do this to me? And then you can ask why, I know you're good, I just don't understand. And those are two very different ways to come to someone. One is thinking that you know what's know it better and the other one is I know you know what's better I just don't understand so help me understand and I think that's all the difference and as we move closer to retreat and as we are pursuing greater intimacy with the Lord one of the things that happens is God starts to surface things and things sometimes what that could look like on the surface is things being hard or issues coming up but really what that is is an opportunity to engage and to ask. And every opportunity to engage and to ask is really an opportunity to understand the heart of God. It's really an, it's an opportunity to see who he is beyond that, that struggle or that pain. Because always, the way that we would see it, we would, we would fixate on that. But God actually has something 
past. And I think that's the freedom of what the gospel gives us is there's always going to be pain, but with, with the gospel, when we face that, we actually get somewhere, we get past it, and there is freedom, and there's understanding in it. And so that's the, the only thing that I wanted to share. Great. Cool. So we're going to respond with some worship and some prayer. So I'll invite the prayer team up, and uh, I'll invite all of you to stand. I'll lead us in some prayer, and then we'll invite you up to get prayer for really whatever, whatever's on your mind and your heart. If life is happening in a certain way and you just want prayer about that, come on up. If there's something in the message that resonated with you and that you just want freedom from, then, uh, then come up for that as well. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you, God, that as we encounter the various things in this world, God, as we use everything that may come our way, as a prompt to say, why, why God? Like, show me, show me your heart behind this thing that is going on. Show me your heart behind this thing that I'm encountering now. Show me your heart behind this tough interaction that I had with a close friend. Show me your heart behind why this event is going on and, and why it's hitting me in the way it is. Show me your heart behind the rules that you've put in place to keep me safe. Show me your heart everywhere, God. The life and the journey towards intimacy with Jesus can be found in anything that we encounter as we just ask the question, why, God? What's going on? What, what does your heart inform about the way that I need to be interacting with that? So for whatever is going on in your life, whether it's something you're amazingly thankful for and you need to understand the heart of God, what's behind that, or whether it's really tough and gritty and you need to understand the heart behind that. Interact with the Lord over it. Ask Him, invite Him. Holy Spirit, show me your heart. Show me your heart in all of this stuff that's going on. What are you doing here, Lord? I want to see your heart in that. What are you doing here, Lord? I want to see your heart in that. Why do you say it this way, Lord? Why were you like this then? What are you like now? Just use everything in life as a prompt to understand who he is because he's so much better than we think and he's longing for people with humility and hunger towards him to say why God show me the better way and so Lord I pray for a, for a, a fire to blow through this place for a hunger to know who you are God God, I thank you that the truth, whether we believe it fully, half-hearted, or not at all, is that you are way better than we think you are. No matter how much we know about you, God, on the other side, there's, there's a better God than we even thought. And so, Lord, we give you the space in this time, God. Set people free from the false images that we have from you and what you care about more than other things, God. Adjust our thinking into right order such that we can live in your truth and in your freedom, God. And so we ask in this time that it would be powerful, that it would be filled with your Holy Spirit. We just say, God, that we need you to find you. We need you to find freedom. We need you to find life. 
And so, God, would you do a great work in this place as we worship your name, as we ask why, God, with that, that state of heart that Suki was talking about. God, would you do great and wondrous things. We long to know you more, and we thank you that you long to reveal yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and get prayer whenever you're ready.